Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, the realities of the war on Ukraine are being felt more than ever by ordinary Russians. After Vladimir Putin announced plans two weeks ago to mobilize more troops to fight, hundreds of thousands of Russians have fled to neighboring countries to avoid the draft, and anti-war protests have broken out. We look at how the mobilization and Russia's continued battlefield losses are affecting how Russians see the war and their government. Next, on Forum. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Internal dissent is growing in Russia as President Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine drags on and Russian losses mount. In a rebuke to Putin, officials within the Kremlin this week have been calling for his defense minister to step down. Meanwhile, hundreds of thousands of Russian men are estimated to have fled the country to avoid being drafted, and anti-war protests are happening. What impact will any of this have? Joining me first is Mary Ilushina. Russia reporter for the Washington Post. She's with us from Latvia. Welcome, Mary. Hello. So, Mary, could you first give us an update on the military side of things? What's happened to Russian forces on the battlefield the last couple of days? Yes, of course. So, um, it's not has it's not has not been a great time for uh, the Russian military in the past couple of weeks because Ukraine um, is mounting counteroffensive and it's now mounting it in two directions um, and it's gained quite a bit of steam um, in uh, first of all in the eastern parts of the country uh, where Russian forces uh, had suffered several several setbacks they've lost some really strategic um, road junctures and their supply lines there have been um, essentially disrupted. And now we've also seen last weekend that Ukraine acknowledged a breakthrough in the Kherson region in the south. And Kherson, um, just to remind everyone, is a, a pretty strategic port city in the south of the country that Russia took in very first days of the invasion and held ever since. But now that seems to be, you know, their positions have been weakened there as well. And we're hearing about of course, very low morale among Russian soldiers, but just also a lack of basic equipment and so on that, that some family members of soldiers are trying to crowdsource gear. What are you hearing along those lines? 
Yeah, it's been so the the effort to uh, crowdfund and crowdsource uh, drones and even some tactical gear has been going on for a long time because the forces that Russia had even prior to this mobilization were also struggling to get that. But now, as Russia is trying to send tens of thousands of people into battlefield, you know, there's some really wild stories that some people have to buy their own stuff because just the army can't provide them with some really basic things. You know, I'm on a lot of like group chats and then, and, and, you know, various groups that are set up by mothers and wives and just family members of people who have been mobilized and they're just asking each other advice and, and trying to figure out where to get uh, goggles and boots and, and even thermal underwear and things like that. Things like you would think the army should be able to provide them with. But really, the conditions have been appalling in some places. Yeah. Could you bring us up to speed on the impact of Putin's announcement two weeks ago that he was mobilizing 300,000 more soldiers? I know that that number is in question as well, but it sounds like it's it's been a debacle, frankly. It's been a debacle, and it's sent a lot of people into the state of panic because there were a lot of problems with the mobilization. People who, there were some people who were blind or deaf or really old or just physically incapable of fighting were receiving summons. And when they tried to explain um, to the enlistment office, like, look, I can't do this. This is not possible. It must be a mistake. Some people couldn't win that battle and they were sent for training. And it took a lot of like public pressure and, and public scandals to actually bring them back. So that obviously added to this chaos. And um, it's been quite stunning to see that um, about 20 uh, regional leaders in Russia out of 85 or now, what Russia says, 89 regions, um, have come up with public criticism against the defense ministry, against the enlistment officers. They said that they're not doing their job right, that they're uh, creating this panic and so in confusion, they should um, you know, revise their whole mobilization and enlistment system. You say that's stunning because that kind of criticism is is pretty rare, I imagine. It almost never happens. It always never happens because just a public admission of mistakes is very rare. And, you know, people understand that, you know, a lot of, especially people who actually serve in the army and spent the mandatory one or two year conscription service, they're not necessarily willing to do that again because they've dealt with the system. They know that how flawed it is and how, uh, much bureaucracy is going on, and sometimes there's not a lot of logic. So um, not everyone is willing to go through this again. And they know how, you know, that the resources that the Russian army has is not exactly what uh, is being portrayed to the public and what is publicly being said about how the army is faring in general. Yeah. It, also, could you just explain why there is some concern about how many people um, Putin and his allies are trying to mobilize a question of whether or not they really have the capacity to mobilize far more than 300,000. Yeah, well, there are two reasons why people are worried. First of all is the decree that Putin signed has a secret uh, item seven, um, which the Kremlin acknowledged deals with the number of uh, people they're looking to mobilize. So the figure 300,000 was only sort of said, but it's not written anywhere. And, um, you know, there are some reports that it may be a million, uh, maybe even more. Um, Kremlin has dismissed that, but the fact remains that there is no written law or document that says this is the top number, the cap number that we're trying to recruit. And also there's been um, so several quite really good investigations by Russian outlets and independent monitoring groups that look at people who have been actually mobilized in regions 
And that goes against what the defense minister Shogo said, who said it's only going to be about 1%. Some regions already recruited 5% of their reservists. And if you sort of um, apply that to the entire country, that number is already climbing up above um, 300,000. So people are concerned that it's actually going to be way more. And so there has been an exodus, especially of, of Russian men. And, and you have been talking to people crossing the border. Can you tell us what they're facing, what they're telling you? Well, for some, it was you know just a one-day decision to abandon, abandon their entire life and go uh, to Georgia or to Kazakhstan to uh, very few remaining destinations for Russians uh, that allow people that don't have visas um, to come because Europe is essentially closed for um, Russians. And some spent three, four days just you know sleeping on the ground, waiting in huge lines. Um, there's no official number about on how many people have left, um, but some estimates vary. They could be 300,000, which would be pretty much the exact number Putin was looking to mobilize, um, up to 600,000. Um, and we you know, have some official information from the countries that received Russians. It looks like it's definitely already in several hundred thousand people who have left. Wow. So the exodus is real and continues because the borders are still open and people especially men of you know some have served some have not served but they're really really concerned that they might end up uh, on the front lines despite having no military experience because that's already happened to some people in russia yeah we've heard that some are fearful that the borders will close have you heard anything on this that's been a perpetual fear, I would say, since the beginning of the war, because the first rumors of mobilization have been flying around since February. I think a lot of other people have been um, concerned about that. So we're, what we're seeing now is actually the second wave, the second exodus of Russians um, out of the country. Yes, but so far, right. that has not happened, and the Kremlin has tried to assure everyone that's not going to happen, um, because that would, again, probably create even more panic across the general public. Talk a little bit about the protests that you've seen. You have reported in others about how this mobilization is really bringing home the reality of war to ordinary Russians, but there have certainly been, especially in rural areas among ethnic minorities or the poor, it's very much been felt there already, right? Yes, they've been just proportionally affected by uh, sort of the initial enlistment um, of people. And now with the mobilization, I've spoken to some activists in Buryatia, for example, um, which is, you know, an ethnic minority in Russia. Um, and it's one of the poorer regions. They've already been second in numbers of casualties that they've sustained in, in Ukraine. And now, um, so several villages just being rounded up. A lot of people who are should not be <laughs> enlisted. You know, they're older, some of them like nearly six years old, um, have been, have received summons and had to go to medical examination centers and try to sort of prove that they are not eligible for service. But um, what they're concerned about is that it, because they are remote regions, because there's less media attention there, because they're poor and because they have like less family ties um, with the Ukrainians, that they will be disproportionately affected by this, that the Russian government and the defense ministry will try to round up more people in those area, areas rather than in Moscow and St. Petersburg. Yeah. And, and how are police treating protesters, anti-war protesters? Um, in the first days since the mobilization, 
Um, I think there was over 2,000 arrests, and it's become, over the past couple of years, actually, become really difficult to protest in Russia because um, any sort of dissent is not being tolerated. Um, there were anti-war protests um, in March, um, and, you know, police started detaining people for things like just holding up a blank piece of paper on the street because they felt like they saw it as a protest. Um, and they've just routed up people and find them. Some of them have been arrested um, and given administrative um, uh, sentences. So it's really, really difficult to express um, your will. And some uh, people who have been recently detained report that they've been beaten in police stations and there's a lot of brutal treatment going on. So it's obviously very, very hard for them to continue. Uh, um, this is a massive effort. Yeah. There was something that you said at the very beginning where you talked about the Russian president, Putin, talking about the 89 regions, I think is what you said, of yeah. Russia. Why mm -hmm. is that number significant? Because uh, Russia recently uh, claimed that it, you know, annexed uh, uh, four Eastern, Eastern Ukrainian regions. Uh, it's Donetsk and Luhansk, where there have been uh, some ter uh, territories that have been controlled by um, the Kremlin-backed separatists since uh, 2014, but also Kherson and Zaporizhia areas. And what's um, quite stunning about this is that the referendums have been rejected even before they happened by the Western community because they say you can't express your will at a gunpoint. Um, but Russia nonetheless continued with uh, these votes and then proclaimed that it absorbed these territories and now they're Russia and now it's 80 nine regions. Yeah, he's already claiming that um, in messages to the people. And we will talk more with you, Mary Ilushina, right after the break. Mary Ilushina is again Russia reporter for The Washington Post. You, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation with your questions about what's happening, not just in Ukraine, but, but in Russia, and how some of the recent Issues on the battlefield and outside have been affecting how Russians are seeing the war, feeling the war, and seeing their government. 866-733-6786, the number. Email address forum at kqed.org. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Here's what we're talking about tomorrow. California's inability to solve homelessness. Over half of San Francisco's unhoused residents are unsheltered. In Boston, 3% of unhoused people are unsheltered. We'll hear what Massachusetts is doing that California is not. 
This hour, we're talking about the impact that Putin's war in Ukraine is having on the Russian people. We have Mary Lushina with us, Russia reporter for The Washington Post. And I want to bring into the conversation now Michael Kimmage, professor and history department chair at Catholic University of America. His new piece for Foreign Affairs is called What Mobilization Means for Russia, The End of Putin's Bargain with the People. Michael Kimmage, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. So you see this mobilization being a dramatic turning point in the war and in Putin's rule. Is that right? And if so, why? Indeed. And in, in, in this article, my co-author Maria Lippmann and I argue that it was possible really for a long stretch of Putinism going back to 2000 when Putin came to power to be apolitical. It was difficult to be in the opposition, but it was possible and even in some ways encouraged to be apolitical, and remarkably, that sort of stayed in effect during the first seven, eight months uh, of the war. The government wanted people to support it, but if they didn't, they could sort of stay at home and mind their own business. And what mobilization has done is to bring the war to the Russian people, uh, and in a sense, to politicize them uh, in ways I think that will be really quite unpredictable. So that, in addition to the military um, material that you've already been discussing, that makes this a quite significant turning point. Quite significant turning point. Um, but how? First of all, Mary, I know you you need to leave us. One of the things that I, I do wonder is the degree to which we can accurately gauge the Russian people's response to this war. We see polls um, that suggest that, that there was some 80, maybe 75 percent, that that's dropped down by maybe four or five percentage points with regard to Russia and its war on Ukraine. But but how how do you gauge polls and and gathering of data and sentiment like that under a, an authoritarian regime like Putin's? I think the polls about Putin's rating in particular are not the best indicator here because because you know, in an environment like this, if somebody asks you whether you support Vladimir Putin or not and just knocks on your door or phones you, you might be inclined to say yes. But I think what is indicative is another poll that happened that took place recently um, that shows that nearly, I think it's over 70 uh, a percent of Russians said that anxiety and sort of angst is the overwhelming mood um, amongst their families and friends because people are very anxious. People are worried about what's happening. Um, and the sort of the first months of the invasion where both Vladimir Putin and Russian state TV have been portraying it as a very targeted limited operations. That's now over because it appears that even the Russian state TV now can't not acknowledge that Russian military is losing in Ukraine, um, that there are some setbacks, that there are mistakes, that mobilization is not going on incredibly well. So people are aware and the bubble sort of in a way has burst because they see now that not everything is as good as they maybe try to think or try to sort of isolate themselves from the horrors of everything. Um, so I think that is a good indicator. People are definitely worried and anxious. And even when I talk to somebody who says I'm apolitical, they might not say that they don't like Vladimir Putin, but they will say that they're worried about their son, brother, husband, uh, or whoever, um, go into war and die because they don't really understand why they should do that. But how much access to information do they have about the realities on the ground? The reason I ask is because I think you have contrasted a message that Putin broadcast to the Russian people yesterday on teachers 
day, besides the fact where he talked about all 89 regions of Russia, which we talked about why that was significant before the break. Didn't he suggest something like there would be school children in the parts of Ukraine that that he annexed even while they are suffering battlefield losses there? Yeah, he was focused on um, organizing uh, like leisure activities for them. And he claimed also kind of without evidence that uh, children in those areas haven't been schooled for a long time. Um, and he was quite contradictory in that speech in general, because he said he always respected Ukrainian culture and heritage. But then a couple of sentences later, he said that uh, Russian teachers need to bring Russian morality and Russian sort of national idea to everyone, um, including the new territories. Um, so he has been definitely a little bit oblivious in his speeches. Uh, but again, I think more and more people, because obviously state TV is, and general television is the most popular um, um, source for people, especially of certain age, somebody who's a bit older um, of information. But even there, you see pretty tense scenes unfold where a propagandist that have been talking for months how great Russian invasion is and how great everything is going, they're now saying, why was no one covering our forces in Kherson? Why there's a breach there? Uh, what is happening? Like, will mobilization help? Will all these people who have not been actually properly trained militarily change the course of this invasion? They're asking all this question now out in the public. So I think the access to information has increased. It's still very, very limited. And unless you are seeking out information through VPNs and on some social media and Telegram and all these channels, you probably don't have the full picture. But I think the picture has definitely changed compared to even a couple of months ago. Yeah. Well, Mary, I really appreciate being on with us and giving us the time that you could today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Mary Ilushina is Russia reporter for The Washington Post. And we have Michael Kimmage with us, professor and history department chair at Catholic University of America. His books include The Abandonment of the West, The History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy. And from 2014 to 2016, he served on the secretary's policy planning staff at the U.S. State Department, where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. Michael Kimmage, one of the things that uh, I mentioned in our introduction is the fact that there has been some dissent, some internal dissent and calls even for Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu to step down. I wonder what you see as the significance of this. Do you think that this is, again, a pretty stunning development? I'm not sure about stunning. I mean, you have to assume that there's quite a bit of fighting going on under the carpet in the Kremlin simply because things are going so badly and because Putin is beginning to weaken uh, politically. And I think that that's spilling out a little bit uh, into the public sphere, but it's you know not equivalent to a, a sort of full crack in the edifice or something that suggests a sort of change in, uh, in government. But it's certainly not the kind of stuff that you were hearing a month ago or two months ago. Uh, and so it contributes to this aura of, uh, of chaos and deteriorating uh, political situation in Russia. Well, Michael tweets, are Russians afraid that the Ukraine war will escalate to war with NATO? Well, in a sense, this is how Putin has characterized the war almost from the beginning, and certainly since the speech he gave on the 30th of September, celebrating the annexation of these um, Ukrainian territories uh, into into Russia. So rhetorically, Russia has been there for a while, or rather Putin has been there uh, for a while. Uh, And, you know, I think that interestingly, the sort of propagandists that Mary was speaking a moment ago about on television are really starting to emphasize the NATO component or the U.S. component in the war as if this is the explanation for 
you know, sort of for, for, for Russia's setbacks. Uh, and I'm sure that there is a kind of fear that the war could spread in some sense uh, and become larger than it is. But, um, you know, I think that that's for the time being an abstract fear. Uh, and the real worries and concerns that Russians have have to do with people who are on the front and people who are fighting within Ukraine. Yes. Well, let me remind listeners that you can post your questions or comments on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum by emailing forum at kqed.org or by calling us at 866-733-6786. Let me go to Tom in Los Gatos. Hi, Tom. Hi, Nina. Great show, and thanks for taking my call. Uh, you know, the Russians have been threatening for a long time to use uh, nuclear weapons if uh, Russian soil is bombed or invaded and now the eastern provinces officially part of Russia, at least according to Russian law, uh, it seems suicidal, absolutely insane that we are allowing uh, Ukrainian forces to uh, continue warfare in these provinces. Uh, and also, it was uh, this whole thing started over oil and gas uh, four days before the, inv- the invasion. Senator uh, Lindsay uh, was talking about uh, destroying all of Russia's oil and gas infrastructure. Uh, that would have caused you know millions of deaths in Russia from the uh, bombing of the infrastructure, uh, workers' housing, uh, all the uh, uh, schools and hospitals, and it would have, they would have starved because they had no income from uh, oil and gas after their infrastructure was totally destroyed. So it seems like this this war has turned completely insane, which is just a you know a step away or the brother or sister of a worldwide nuclear holocaust. So we have to uh, call a halt, you know, immediately, and also negotiate end of all the sanctions because uh, you know the Russians are only mm. living uh, like on average fifty five to fifty nine since the uh, sanctions started. Tom, let so me get probably not thinking very well. Let me get Michael's reaction to to what you're saying. You're raising a lot of things there. Well, I would respectfully disagree with some of uh, Tom's assessment, although I very much share the concerns he raises about the conflict taking a nuclear. Uh, turn and would also agree that the U.S. government has a responsibility to think very carefully about uh, what that means and uh, on the one hand to work on uh, deterrence and on the other hand perhaps to open channels of communication uh, with Russia that could prevent misreadings and mistakes from taking things in that direction. But where I disagree is in his assessment of uh, the origins of the war. I think it was very much Putin's decision to wage this war uh, unprovoked by Ukraine Uh, or by uh, the West. And I think in terms of the annexations, one has to bear in mind that Russia has sort of gone into the territory of a neighboring country, declared provinces of that country its own, uh, and then said it will sort of defend them with this and that, uh, you know, sort of nuclear and other doctrine. If one were to just let that stand, you know, Russia could walk through half of Europe and sort of make those kinds of, uh, of claims. So there's a, you know, absolute reason why Ukraine would not accept those terms. And I think there's a good reason why Washington wouldn't accept those terms either. Can you talk a little bit about your concerns around the use of nuclear weapons? That's always kind of been a cloud looming over this. Um, But the other day, Putin did speak of firing tactical nuclear weapons at Ukrainian targets. What does this mean, you know, relative to the broader concerns around use of nuclear weapons, Michael? I think that you can make a couple of points that don't quite align with each other, add up to maybe a bit of a paradox or a contradiction. The first point I would make is that this war is not similar to anything that we saw during the Cold War. It's much more fluid. Uh, The U.S. and Russia are much closer to each other in terms of the 
the conflicts than they ever were during the Cold War, which was characterized by proxy wars and a, a degree of distance between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. So the chances of this war taking a kind of chaotic turn uh, are are sort of better than they were in the past. And that, of course, raises all kinds of grave implications when it comes to the use of, uh, of nuclear weapons. But I would underscore that for Putin, this is a very, very inadequate military tool. Uh, it probably would not compel the Ukrainians to surrender. Uh, and simply using nuclear weapons on the battlefield uh, wouldn't necessarily uh, change the logic of the war. Uh, and you know the sort of conventional military defeat since Russia has been suffering uh, might simply be ongoing. And then the final point to make, uh, and I have the impression that this has been communicated from Beijing to Moscow in the last uh, week or so, is that this would probably create a fearsome global coalition, including the United States and China, uh, against Russia, were Russia to travel down this road. Uh, and that could be devastating, uh, you know, sort of for Russia more, uh, more generally. So I don't think it's a good option. Uh, I have a hard time believing that Putin would sort of autonomously choose this, but one does have to worry about a series of escalatory events that might um, that might prod him in this direction. Mm, so you're saying that uh, Russia could become even more of an international pariah, I guess, essentially. But isn't there also just the the environmental impacts to take into consideration of using nuclear weapons, especially if he cares about Russia and how so close to the Russian border. Well, yes, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's almost an ironic point to make. I mean, Putin has just declared a lot of this territory to be Russian, uh, as, uh, as a caller recently noted, uh, and then to use nuclear weapons on it would, would be to use nuclear weapons on your own soil, which is, um, you know, sort of absolutely bizarre thing to uh, to do. And, you know, of course, Ukraine is a close neighbor of Russia. So the ecological and health blowbacks of nuclear weapons could affect uh, Russia as much as uh, as Ukraine. And certainly the shock effect of, of even the use of one tactical nuclear weapon uh, would be absolutely immense and would, I think, change the calculus for countries like Brazil, uh, India and China that have been either on the fence or have been tacitly supporting Russia. Uh, in this conflict. So hopefully that's a very considerable check on, on Putin's appetite for using nuclear weapons. How does his use of that rhetoric play among his own population in Russia with, with regard to nuclear weapons, Michael Kimmage? I think it's a double-edged sword for Putin. Uh, and on the one hand, I think on this, in the speech in the, on the 30th of September, which was an anti-American diatribe that he mentioned, Hiroshima and Nagasaki and said these are the precedents that are set that Russia could act upon in this war. I mean, to a degree, I think this posturing and this kind of rhetoric uh, rings true to certain of, of Putin's supporters. It sounds like tough talk, uh, like Putin is addressing the United States as a co-equal uh, great power. So it does a certain amount of political work for, for Putin. But going back to some of the things that Mary was saying, it's another way in which the war is now being brought home to Russians, that Russians would worry about nuclear war no less than Ukrainians or Germans or uh, Americans right. uh, and a war that be began supposedly as a military technical operation, this kind of small operation uh, is now taking on the contours, at least in some of Putin's rhetoric uh, of, uh, of a nuclear confrontation. So that has to be as terrifying for them, as it were, uh, as it is for us. Well, we're getting a lot of questions from listeners. Let me go to this one. The listener writes, I assume that there are some efforts to use diplomatic channels to speak some sense to Russia, is that China, Switzerland? Who is talking to Putin? Well, those are good candidates. I mean, Switzerland has, 
changed some of its traditional neutrality in this in this conflict and is is you know very uh, with reserve is on the side of uh, of Ukraine and the United States, but certainly China, uh, also Turkey and Israel uh, are all interlocutors uh, with Russia, and you know leaders there have different kinds of personal relationships with uh, with Vladimir Putin, and I assume that there is a kind of channel, a kind of vehicle that exists in these countries that if Putin were to moderate and think of coming to the table that he could turn to these countries uh, and sort of use their good offices to uh, to engage in real diplomacy. I have to say it's an outcome I would love to see. It's 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 one that seems uh, in the medium term or, or sort of long term uh, at the moment Putin looks recalcitrant uh, and aggressive. So I think for the foreseeable future, diplomacy is on hold. Another listener tweets, things have gotten more complicated now. Saudi Arabia is siding up with Russia and Iran by influencing OPEC pricing. Do they hope this will force the U.S. and NATO to decrease support for Ukraine? I think it's about that for Saudi Arabia. I think that Saudi Arabia knows that the U.S. is in it for the long haul. Eastern Europe is not going to change its position one bit. And I think Western Europe is certainly not on the verge of withdrawing from sanctions or minimizing its military support. Uh, to Ukraine. I think what Saudi Arabia doesn't like is the idea that these kind of financial pressures could be successful. They could be successful vis-a-vis Russia, and then, of course, they could be turned against uh, Saudi Arabia. So I think it's a way of Saudi Arabia curtailing some of the financial might of the West. uh, And uh, in that sense, it's not really a move that's related directly to Ukraine. We're talking with Michael Kimmage. We're talking about the impact that Putin's war in Ukraine is having on the Russian people and how they perceive their government. What questions do you have about that? How it's affecting Russians, how Russians are responding, ordinary Russians, or maybe you have family or friends in Russia. What are you hearing from them? You can email forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. And you can always give us a call. 866-733-6786 is our number. 866-733-6786. We'll have more with Professor Kimmage, Professor in History Department Chair, Catholic University of America, after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Michael Kimmage, who from 2014 to 2016 served on the Secretary's policy planning staff at the U.S. State Department, where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. And we're talking with him about, about how Putin's war in Ukraine is being felt by the Russian people today, given some of the recent developments with regard to battlefield losses and the attempt at a draft or warnings of such a thing. Michael Kimmich is with us, as are you, our listeners, at 866-733-6786, on email, forum at kqed.org, or on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum, also Instagram as well. Jenny writes, is this the start of regime change? For Russia, another listener is asking, is it possible that Putin could be overthrown? What do you think, the answer Michael? To, the yeah. answer to both questions, I think, is is yes, although um, it's, I think, the beginning of a slow process. I mean, obviously, one should be wary of any kind of firm prediction uh, in this regard. But, you know, Putin is truly losing the war. And if you judge the war by its political objectives that were set in Moscow in February of 2022 when the war began... It's really unobtainable. Russia is not going to obtain these political objectives. It's not going to control Ukraine. It's not going to partition Ukraine. And really, in that sense, the war has been lost. It's a it's a senseless war, and it has a very strong criminal undertow to it in terms of war crimes uh, and such. It's isolating Russia from the rest of the world, and it's going to damage the Russian uh, economy. So in every sense, it's a kind of strategic catastrophe uh, for Russia. Obviously, Russia is not a democracy, and so there isn't accountability with elections. Uh, and, you know, there isn't an opposition movement yet to speak of. So that's in the future. Uh, but certainly palace intrigue uh, and some kind of coup that could occur within the Kremlin uh, does seem uh, entirely possible. I don't know who <laughs> would have the wherewithal to do it. Putin has surrounded himself con- consciously with mediocrities. Uh, but in a sense, the incentive is there. Uh, and the crisis is there. It's a kind of Shakespeare play in the making. Well, the listener's question also continues to say, who would be next in line? Does Russia become a military dictatorship? If history is any guide, uh, the answer to that question would be no. Uh, that's you know sort of not a precedent in in Russia. Other countries, you know, sort of go back and forth when it comes to uh, the military taking control. So you know, I think that's maybe uh, uh, unlikely. But you know, I think it's really. Uh, anybody's guess, uh, you know, in terms of uh, of talent, you have the so-called liberal reformers, a few of whom are still in the government, and they probably would be the best suited to take uh, the reins. Uh, but I don't think that they have the character to overthrow uh, the king. Uh, so you might turn your attention to the security services and somebody like Vortnikov, the head of the FSB, the successor to the KGB, or, or, or Patrushev at the National Security Council, who um, uh, who might have uh, you know, the sort of the type of character to do this, uh, and then they might also have the institutional resources to uh, to keep on governing. But that's that's a tough question. Hmm. I, I want to go back to the impact of conscription. We did hear from Mary that, of course, the chaos that has ensued. But I do wonder if you think that it is possible for the mobilization, I don't know, to to be effective, <laughs> to enable Russia to to regain ground it's it's lost militarily? You know, I think uh, for it to be effective, let's say in the next six to 12 months, I think is very difficult because you can declare mobilization, but until you get really usable, effective troops, it takes a long time. And that may be time that Russia doesn't quite 
uh, doesn't quite have. But I think that what Putin will try to do as an interim solution is just to stall the war, to drag it out, uh, to see what negative consequences come to Europe this winter uh, with gas and energy, to take a look at the midterm elections uh, in the United States, and to sort of see if something emerges on the other side of the barricades, which is to say among the countries that are supporting Ukraine, that makes them less able to support Ukraine. Uh, and in that sense, Russia might be able to advance in the future. I think it's a low probability bet that Putin is making, but it may be the only bet he can make at this at this point, a long war of attrition in which the other side you know, runs into chronic problems. That's that's the strategy as it stands on the Russian side, and that's sort of his his best hope, as it were. You have said something about how the response in Russia, or at least the one that uh, would be the best possible public response for the Kremlin was acquiescence with indifference a close second. (laughs) And I wonder if your assessment of that being the strength of, you know, support for this to some extent, besides, of course, there's always going to be hawks and people who are really into it, right? Also playing a role in how effective whoever they do mobilize will be on the battlefield. Well, there is this line of argument that Russia is a fascist regime and sort of operates as Nazi Germany did in the 1930s or during the Second World War. And I think by emphasizing these terms, acquiescence and indifference, uh, uh, my co-author and I in the article, Maria Lippmann, were pointing at a different reality uh, that Russia is really not a mobilized society. Uh, And now it's mobilized militarily up to a point, but it's still not ideologically, emotionally mobilized. If you look at Putin's justifications to the war going back to February, they're pretty thin gruel. Uh, There's been one rally today, a big pro-war rally in Moscow. Maybe there was another uh, last week. So let's say that there have been two, you know, sort of big public uh, rallies. It's it's a system that uh, is very accustomed to running on indifference. And that's still kind of how it works. And yet it's a system that's being ramrodded into this major war. So something about it just doesn't work. Uh, in that sense, it's sort of um, a square peg going into a uh, in, into a round hole, uh, and I don't know if Putin can sort of overnight mobilize the society. I don't think that that is going to uh, is going to work very well for him. So you know whether he gets a fierce opposition movement is maybe another question. But you can see, in terms of morale, number of soldiers who have surrendered, and also as already mentioned, all of the young people who have fled the country. There's just a problem of will when it comes to this war, and that's that's a huge problem for Putin. Michael Kimmage's recent piece for foreign affairs is called What Mobilization Means for Russia, The End of Putin's Bargain with the People. Let me go to caller Lucas in San Jose. Hi, Lucas. Uh, Yes, it's been alleged that um, American electronics have been found in captured drones uh, from from Iran uh, that the Ukrainian troops recovered. Uh, Iran's been under sanctions for quite a long time. Uh, How confident are we that we can actually turn off supply from the gray market or resellers of electronics to Russia that they need to rebuild their uh, military. Mm. Lucas, thanks. I, I think I understand. He's asking about the use of, of Iranian drones um, that we have seen recently, Michael Kimmage. Well, uh, you know, I can answer the question in two ways. I think when it comes to Iran, I don't think the U.S. has sort of the leverage to get Iran to stop selling drones or other technology uh, to Russia. Of course, Iran is under U.S. sanctions for other reasons, and there's just not an existent relationship between the two countries. But I thought that there was also mention of American technology uh, in Russian drones, and that would speak to you know smuggling or Russian workarounds when it comes to sanctions. And that's definitely a big 
uh, an important uh, issue. Uh, but, you know, I think in the big picture sense, the sanctions that were put on Russia with the beginning of the war are going to have a huge effect on Russia's military capacities and also, also on its ability to modernize not just chips, but also software. And I think some of those effects are just being felt now uh, and might become more acute uh, over the winter. So, yes, there will be, you know, sort of modest ways in which Russia deviates from the sanctions regime. But the sanctions regime, when it comes to military technology, is showing itself, I think, to be fairly effective. Hmm. Well, the listener writes, what does victory look like here? If the Russians are defeated, does Putin become more dangerous? Does he become more like a Kim Jong-un in North Korea, an unpredictable leader who seems to revel in being unpredictable? I think I can give an unambiguous yes uh, to that question. You know, hmm. Russia remains, of course, a nuclear power, and that doesn't mean that it's going to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine, I think it won't, and I certainly hope it won't, uh, but it makes Russia a country that's not defeatable in the scheme of things, even if it loses in uh, in Ukraine. So this is not World War II uh, redux. Uh, and if Russia loses the kind of grievances that Putin has nursed you know, over the last 20 years when things were going better for Russia, those grievances are gonna get worse. Uh, and Russia is a country that occupies some very, very important global real estate from Europe to the, you know, to the Middle East, to, uh, to Asia. It's a significant part of the world economy in terms of its energy resources. And it has enormous powers from cyber to conventional weapons to nuclear weapons just to wreak havoc. So a disgruntled, enraged Russia that has lost the war uh, is certainly not going to make the world a better or more cheerful place. It would be victory, in a sense, not for everyone. It wouldn't be global victory, but it would definitely be victory for Ukraine. And that, of course, uh, is 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 saying a lot. So that's the most important part of the story, but it would be victory with some very considerable caveats. This is writes, the previous U.S. administration seemed pretty pro-Russian. Have Republicans changed their tune on Russia? Are you keeping an ear to the ground on that, Michael Kimmage? Well, some Republicans have stayed within this mold of being skeptical about support for Ukraine uh, and you know, maybe to a degree pro-Russian, although I haven't, you know, seen much of that since the beginning of the war. You have people who are asking questions about Biden administration policy, but really pro-Putin uh, Republicans after February 2022, um, uh, that's, you know, I think a small minority. Uh, and one has to also go back and take, I think, a somewhat more three-dimensional view of the Trump administration. Trump administration provide lethal military assistance to Ukraine, in particular Javelin, anti-tank weapons, those have been fundamental uh, for the Ukrainian war effort, and the Trump administration ushered two new countries into the NATO alliance. So there was the rhetoric of Trump, there was the relationship Trump had to Putin, mm. those are stories unto themselves. In a way, the Trump administration was relatively hawkish in practice toward uh, toward Russia in ways that are meaningful for the, for the prosecution of the war at the present moment. Mm. That's interesting. Do you... Do you think or see the U.S., uh, you mentioned that this conscription and everything else that is the fallout from it and so on, uh, the battlefield and all of that, the U.S. capitalizing on the on this moment in the war in any respect that uh, that is effective, our policies, our posture towards Russia that they can or should be doing? Well, it's 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 it too is yet another hard question. I think on the one hand, the U.S. has had astonishing success in Ukraine. Uh, and if you just take a step back from 
the daily news, uh, it's really something that sort of leaps out to you. In the first couple of weeks of the war, the U.S. was offering political asylum to, um, to Volodymyr Zelensky, Ukraine's president, and he responded famously, I don't need a ride, I need, uh, I need ammo. But the assessment was that Ukraine was going to lose the war uh, at the beginning. And not only is Ukraine not losing, I mean, it's found ways to defend itself, but in some ways it's really winning the war. And that has a lot to do with, obviously, with Ukrainians' valor, strategy and uh, and political cohesion, but it also has a lot to do with with U.S. support. So, you know, at the present moment, and things can always change in a war, but at the present moment, what you're seeing is, I think, a real run of success uh, for U.S. policy in Ukraine. Where it's a little bit more difficult to, to, to make that claim is when it comes to the end game and when it comes to U.S.-Russian relations. So how does the U.S. manage the next phase? Uh, as I've already said, there's not going to be diplomacy with Russia. <laughs> as I've already said, Russia is not going to be defeated, it's a nuclear power, it's going to stick around unless it, you know, sort of internally uh, falls apart. And so that raises a lot of very difficult questions and, 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 and troubling questions. But with the task at hand, which has been the defense of Ukrainian democracy and sovereignty, uh, huge strides have been made. And that really shouldn't be that shouldn't be downplayed. We're talking with Michael Kimmage, professor and history department chair, Catholic University of America. His new piece for Foreign Affairs is called What Mobilization Means for Russia. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Do you have any insights into why U.S. intelligence agencies leaked that Ukraine was behind the car bomb attack in August that killed the daughter of a a prominent Russian nationalist? Well, according to that article, Ukrainians have not always been forthcoming with the U.S. as to what their battle plans are and uh, about some of their covert activities. And this is important for the U.S. because the U.S. is providing so many sophisticated weapons to Ukraine. And I think that there's a certain anxiety in the White House that these weapons could be used for attacks in Russia or for you know, sort of purposes that the U.S. wouldn't sign on to. And I think that this leak was a shot across the bow uh, in, in that regard. Full support for Ukraine you know, when it comes to defense, when it comes to the war effort, but uh, not, a car, not, a blank, not a blank check uh, that's coming from Washington. That's how I read that article. Hmm. So you think it was a strategic kind of leak? I <laughs> I mean, it I, came out in the New York Times and it seemed to come directly from yeah. uh, from government officials. So it didn't seem casual or, uh, or, uh, or, or, or accidental. And I think really the target audience was the government in Kiev, not, not so much the U.S. public and, 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 and not the Kremlin, but really uh, the, uh, the, the president's office in Kiev. Well, a few more questions on longer-term impacts. This listener asks, given how they're doing in Ukraine, it seems unlikely that Russia would want to engage in another land war. But how does this war affect Russia's grip on nations like Belarus and other former Soviet states? Will this allow other Soviet states to move out of Russia's grip? Yeah, this is a, this is a great question. I think it's sort of the question of the, uh, of the hour. You've seen an uptick in, in, in violence between Azerbaijan in Armenia. Armenia is a country that Russia supports, and I think it's less able to because of all of the resources it's expended in Ukraine. Uh, you've seen an uptick in, 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 in violence uh, near Kyrgyzstan. You've seen you know, sort of Kazakhstan move away from Russia. Belarus seems pretty firmly in grip for the time being. But yes, as Russia diminishes itself in terms of its conventional military power in Ukraine, all of these border issues uh, and relationships come into play in a way that they were not. Uh, a year or two ago. And so it's not an accident that you're seeing uh, a kind of um, emerging chaos uh, on the periphery uh, and on Russia's uh, on Russia's border. That's very much a function of Russia's war 
uh, and of Russia's gradual defeat in this war. Well, Giant writes, how complete is the effect of media propaganda in Russia? Are people there getting any news coverage of the war from the outside world? I think Russia, it's not entirely unlike the U.S. Uh, media environment in the sense that it's fragmented. You have, you know, some people who can consume, you know, Western media uh, in in foreign languages, uh, and they still have access to that. Uh, you have those who are sort of more plugged in and online are less likely to get the government version of events. And as, as Mary mentioned, you have those who get most of their information from TV uh, and probably will hew pretty closely to the to the government line. What's interesting, though, uh, is that some of the bad news is now trickling out through official channels. So even for yes. people who would want to sort of put their head in the sand, it's a little bit more difficult to do so uh, at the at the present moment. And I can only imagine the private conversations that are going on that are probably a bit more critical than we might imagine from over here. Well, let me, I don't know, we got a lot of comments. Let me try to squeeze in one last one. This listener writes, when the oil prices go up astronomically and Europe has a cold winter, does the guest think that the support for Ukraine will dissolve? How much is Europe willing to endure in support of Ukraine? Not dissolve. I think that that's not the verb I would use. It may wobble a bit. Uh, and I don't think it will fall apart in the winter of 22, 2023, of 23. However, and this is, I think, Putin's plan, and who knows if he can sustain this plan, if the war goes on another year, and we're talking about not this coming winter, but the winter after that, and you know, gas prices and oil prices are very, very high, and the economic price is high, then I think Europe might uh, consider breaking ranks uh, and looking for a, a sort of another way of dealing with things. But that's pretty far in the future. I think for this winter, the support for Ukraine will re remain uh, largely in effect. Well, Michael Kimmich, thank you so much for talking with us. I really appreciate it and for responding so substantively to our listeners' questions and calls. It's been such a pleasure, Mina. Thank you so much for having me. Michael Kimmich is, again, a professor and history department chair at Catholic University of America. His books include The Abandonment of the West, The History of an Idea in American Foreign Policy, and his foreign affairs piece is called What Mobilization Means for Russia, The End of Putin's Bargain with the People. Susie Britton produced today's segment. Thank you, listeners, for your calls and comments. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.